All right, for our first message then today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Come to Jesus. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today. Set up real quick. All right. Well, as many of you know, I have just passed my first year of teaching. Uh, it's an endeavor that has been going on for the past few years, but I finally just finished up my first year as a full-blown actual teacher. And one of the things that I think we have a couple teachers in the audience, uh, several actually, uh, that can probably relate to what I'm saying in dealing with children, dealing with human beings at the age of, you know, three years old all the way up to 18 years old. There's, there's a unique characteristic of us humans. And one of those characteristics is that we have a sense of need for group, a need for inclusivism. We want to be a part of something. We want to be, whether it's a sports team or whether it's some organization we're in or whether it's a clique at school, there's some sort of need that we have as human beings to be a part of something. We don't want to feel left out. We also have a weird need as humans for leadership. Now, some of this is, I believe, God-ordained. Last week, we looked, the men did at least, while the women were out here doing their conference, we had the opportunity to go and talk with uh, Wynn Skelton and have him present to us a presentation on something called servant leadership. We know that we are called to be leaders. We are called to be servant leaders. But there's something interesting about human beings that we, we want people to tell us what to do on one side. And we can think about ancient Israel. Think about them. What did they want? They wanted a king. They didn't want to be different. They didn't want to be distinct. They didn't want God to be their king because they didn't have faith, but they wanted to be like all the other nations, and they wanted for God to raise up a king to lord it over them. We also see that when ancient Israel was coming out of Egypt, that Moses went into, onto the mountain, and the people got faint-hearted. The people started distrusting that what Moses had done was truly something that God had done, and they wanted... Aaron to make them gods. There's a need in humanity. People to tell us what to do. We can see this in religion. We can see this in politics. We can see this just in life. There's a need for some sort of leadership. But here's the paradox. Here's kind of the contradiction. In human nature, there's also this flip side that we humans have where we don't want people to tell us what to do. We think we have it figured out. We have a tendency as human beings in our carnal nature to think that we're maybe a little wiser than what we really are. We see this happen just in the world today. People think that they don't need God. They don't need anyone telling them what to do. They blind themselves by pride because if we admit that maybe we don't have everything figured out, 
that might just be a sign of weakness. Because you're having to admit that maybe you don't know everything. Maybe you are in need of something. Maybe you are helpless just to live this world by yourself and to figure everything out. And this side of our human nature is what blinds us. It blinds us because it tells ourselves that we don't need anything. We are all self-sufficient in ourselves. Now the interesting thing about this is that this is the same thing that Jesus dealt with in his day. If you look at the, I don't know if you have the scriptures up there, uh, but my primary text today is from Matthew, the 11th chapter, verses 25 through 30. So let's go ahead and let's turn to Matthew 11, and let's look at some of the things that Jesus was doing. Matthew 11. Matthew, the 11th chapter. And we need to kind of get an overview of the narrative, because even though Matthew, the 11th chapter, is connected to our primary text, we need to look to see what was going on before Jesus said what he said at the end of the chapter. So in the 11th chapter, we're not going to read everything. We're just going to kind of give an overview of this. Jesus had just got done teaching his disciples, his 12 disciples. And the thing about it was is he's in Galilee and he's preaching to the cities and he's doing things like performing miracles, as we're going to see. And John the Baptist, who earlier came and was proclaiming that he was the one making straight, making the path straight for the Lord, he came and he started re re preaching a repentance, preaching a baptism of repentance. But John, at this point in the 11th chapter, and Matthew, he's in prison. And he starts maybe thinking to himself, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe I was maybe confused on Jesus' identity. I don't think this is a lack of John's faith, but he sends a couple of his disciples to, John, to Jesus. And these disciples ask Jesus, are you the one we're looking for? Do we have it right? Are you the prophet? Are you the one that we thought you were? And what, how does Jesus answer? Jesus doesn't just say, yes, I am. But he, he, he answers it indirectly like he does so many times. He gives them the fruits of what he's been doing. Jesus says to these men that come to, to, come to uh, him from John, to go back and tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Jesus is showing his fruits. He's showing how, look, you ask me this question, are, am I the one you're looking for? Look at my fruits. What do they point to? What do the scriptures point to? And from here, Jesus begins to start teaching in the cities of Galilee. And in the cities, he starts performing miracles, and he starts going into a judgment mode and a woe on the cities he's preaching to because they're rejecting his message. They're rejecting his miracles. And it's interesting because the Jews of Jesus' day, in which he's coming into contact with, no matter the style of the message that's coming to them, they reject. John the Baptist comes in the fashion of repentance, not eating anything but locusts and wild honey. In the wilderness, he's got a demon. Jesus, on the other hand, almost the exact opposite, comes 
performing miracles, joyous miracles, is eating and drinking, and he's feasting, he's partying. He's a wine-bibber and a friend of sinners. So, what we see here is that Jesus is being rejected by the religious leaders and the Jews of his day. Why? Why would they reject what he was doing? I think the answer is pride. Jesus was not needed to them. They're the covenant people. They have everything figured out. We're the Jews. We're, we're children of Abraham. Why do we need you? We don't need you. We already have everything figured out. And because of this, because they felt that they were self-sufficient and they relied on their flesh, they relied on their physical genealogy, their physical prosperity. They didn't want to understand, they didn't want to learn from Jesus because of their arrogance. And so what Jesus says to them is probably one of the most insulting things you could say to the Jews of Jesus' day. He starts bringing out different cities. Horizon, Bethsaida, Tyre, and Sidon, Saddam. All cities that are just been drenched in history and paganism and false worship. Not covenant people with God. And Jesus says, if I did the miracles before them, they would have repented. This would have been the most sobering and stunning thing that Jesus could have done and said to the people who were rejecting his message. Because here you have Israel, you have the Jews who think that they're so righteous, they're the ones who are in covenant with God. They're the ones who God made a covenant with. And you're basically saying that these false cities that have their false idols, their false deities, their idolatry and paganism are more open-minded and more apt to accept the truth of God than you. So let's look at Matthew, the 11th chapter, and verse 25 through 30. Because after Jesus pronounces judgment on these people for rejecting his message... He says these words in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it so seemed good in your sight, and all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in this, we, we can see that what Jesus is doing is He's extending an invitation. He's extending an invitation to those who are willing to listen. Now there's three things I'm going to bring out today that I think we can learn from Jesus' words. We have a context. We know that the people of Galilee and of Israel of Jesus' day are rejecting Jesus' message. The general populace, that is. 
But the first thing we can learn from this is that we need to avoid vain pride and submit to our need for God. We need to avoid vain pride and submit to our need for God. Now Jesus, right here in verse 25, begins with a prayer to God the Father. A prayer to God the Father. And this prayer shows us two things. One of it, it shows us God's mercy and grace. If we look and see what God or Jesus said to the Father, He calls Him what? The Lord of heaven and earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty much extending and showing the sovereignty of God. God created everything in this universe. All the complexities, everything, the vastness of the heavens to just the smallest complexity of a bug or a butterfly or a human being. All was created by God. And God's mercy is being shown because for the God of this universe to reveal something to human beings shows that God's mercy and grace is astounding. This also shows God's judgment, this prayer. Jesus reveals that God has hidden His truths from the self-proclaimed wise and given them to the humble and open-minded. Now, the thing we need to know is that God is not showing partiality to those who are really, truly wise and prudent. If you're a wise person and you are really prudent, God's not going to say... No, you can't have my truth, but rather what Jesus is saying, he is being sarcastic. The self-proclaimed wise in their own eyes have been blinded, and those who the self-proclaimed wise call children, babes, unlearned, God is revealing them to. This phrase, wise and prudent, it means wise and prudent, in their own eyes. And the issue was one of pride. And the Jews of Jesus' day had the unhealthy sense of self-understanding. In fact, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, we can see in Matthew, the third chapter, when John first started to begin baptizing people, some of the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders came to John. And John was surprised. And it kind of shows a little bit of the attitude of the people of the day. And Matthew, the third chapter, verse 7, it says, But when he saw many, that is John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who, wanted you to flee from the, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this shows us one thing, and that is the general sense of the Jews in Jesus' day. Perpetuated by the religious leaders. John says, don't say to yourself, don't just rely on that confidence and that vain pride of yours. Oh, where are the children of Abraham? But he tells them, I tell you what, God can raise up children from these stones. That's how easy you can be grafted out. Children of Abraham, by descendants, 
but not children of Abraham, obviously, by spirit. Because we know that Abraham had faith in God and trusted God and relied on God for his understanding, for his righteousness. The consequence of this self-sufficient attitude results in God passing over the Jews of Jesus' day in judgment. God judges. And we see Jesus judge. And this judgment was by taking away the truth from them, blinding them. Those who are self-sufficient in their own eyes, God blinds them and gives them the babes. Now, an illustration I think that we can look at is in the world we live in today, we see this attitude even trickle down to us and mankind. I mean, that's what we've convinced ourselves as humanity, right? We don't need God. We can figure things out. Look how technologically advanced we are. Look at our medicine. Look at our science. Look at all the things we can do. We can go to the moon. We can create small devices like this that can pack so much power that pretty much we have everything we would want. We don't need God, and we certainly don't need this Jesus. In Jesus' day, I think one of the things that were a stumbling block for the generation in which he was speaking to was that coming to accept him, coming to accept the fact that maybe they didn't have everything right. Maybe submitting to him meant that they had to concede that they were in need of something. It didn't matter what covenant they were in. It didn't matter that they were a part of the Israel heritage. But what mattered is, is that they were in need of God. They were in need of God. I think that this is the problem of humanity in accepting God because when we accept God genuinely and truly, we have to concede that we need Him. We come to the realization that we can't do it on our own. We can't figure everything out. We can look at our political situations all across this country and to other countries. We can't figure it out on our own. We need the help of God. Another point I think that this kind of shows us is to come to Christ because He gives the eternal rest. Come to Christ because He gives the eternal rest. Jesus extends a call to those who are exhausted and realize their efforts are in vain. And as we have seen from the context of Scripture, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, what did Jesus say? Jesus said that they put heavy burdens on the backs and on men's shoulders, but they themselves didn't bear any of it. So the religious leaders would pride themselves. They would set in Moses' seat, and they would put all these extra external requirements all over the people. But they didn't themselves do anything. And it's interesting that Jesus actually says, do what they say, but not what they do. This extra external requirement was that the religious leaders of Jesus' day pride themselves in, made them feel self-sufficient. They were in control. They controlled their destiny. They, they replaced the reliance in God to reliance on self. Reliance on God to reliance on self. And here is the problem when we do that. Anytime we think that we can do it on our own, that we can come to God on our own, 
we deny the holiness of God. How do we do that? Because we don't realize that we have a holy and righteous God. We're not good enough to come to God on our own. We cannot come to God on our own and through ourselves and through our own works. We need Christ. We need a righteous Savior. We need a perfect Savior. Coming to God on our own is foolishness. And we understand this, and we understand that this is the purpose of Christ. It also makes ourselves become set up for a burdensome life. Why? Because we fail. We fall. We stumble. What do we do when we stumble? Where is our justification? Where do we get reconciliation outside of Christ? We don't. We don't. And if we can recall ancient Israel, just to give an illustration, drop one of my pieces of notes here. We can call ancient Israel as an illustration. One of the things that, that God desired for Israel was what? We think of obedience, and that's true. But at the core of obedience is faith and trust. Trust results in obedience. Israel wavered in faith and caused them to begin disobeying God. It was because they did not trust God. So many times we see that God's desire for Israel was that they would trust Him. They would put their faith in Him. That they would see the things that He did for them and understand that He was not going to let them wander as orphans in the wilderness. But that He was their God and He would bring them to the promised land. And as they moved into the promised land, what happened? Things were going good, but sooner or later, Israel began wavering in faith. And as they wavered in faith, as they wavered in their trust for God, what happened? They started putting their trust in the things of this world. False gods, idol worship, alliances with other nations for protection. This is the story of Israel. They forsook God because of lack of trust, because they wanted to do it themselves. They wanted to secure protection for themselves. And they sought it through physical, worldly means instead of putting and remaining their trust in God. And it's interesting because the Jews of Jesus' day were doing the same thing, but in a different way. Jews in Jesus' day, yeah, they didn't have the idolatry problem at least not in physical idolatry. They didn't have the problem of just ignoring the law of God. They went through the Babylonian captivity and they came out and they got pretty serious about falling into temptation to break God's Sabbath, to break God's law, to break and go into idolatry and whoring after other nations and other gods. But all they did was they replaced reliance on false worship, reliance on false idols, reliance on false governments and false alliances, and they transferred that to reliance on self, to reliance on extracurricular things surrounding the law. They relied on rabbis, Pharisees, Sadducees, telling them that what they were doing would make them righteous. They relied, instead of on God, they relied on themselves. They relied 
on their physical genealogies, their physical inheritance, their covenant people with God. That's what they relied on. And the promise that Jesus makes for those who come to Him, as we see, is rest. And that is what God wanted to give Israel. That is what God wants to give us, and He has given us, is rest. God wants to give us rest. And this rest is referred to in the forgiveness of sins and the guilty conscience that comes from sin. And it's also found in the promised full redemption in the future in God's kingdom. This rest is embodied by Jesus' first beatitude. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the person who realizes that they are in need for God. That they don't have everything figured out. That they realize they can't rely on themselves, but they have to rely on God. Blessed is those who the Bible calls, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, babes, children, just like Jesus continually said, coming to God like a child, in a childlike manner, to enter the kingdom. Because a child, as we're looking at Father's Day ahead of us, a child trusts that parent. A child trusts the father. The child relies. A child knows instinctively that they need their parents. They need their parents for direction. To be able to understand what to do for guidance. The third thing we can see that Jesus says is that we need to come and learn from Jesus Christ, the true teacher. This is what this is all about. We're going to see this in the verses that Jesus says. Jesus says, take my yoke. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. I will give you rest. Included in the call and invitation, Jesus extending an invitation to exchange yokes. To exchange yokes. This word yoke was a common term in Jesus' day. And it has its origin in the burden of work placed on animals for pulling things. And in fact, in these days, obviously, you didn't have automobiles. You didn't have electronic or motorized transportation. Rather, you relied on animals for a lot of the work you had to do. And one of the things that they would do is they would use oxen. Oxen to pull and to, to, to carry things. And the way they would train a young oxen is that they would hook a young oxen to a more experienced, older oxen. And that young oxen would kind of be trained by the older one. They would kind of learn the skill needed to do the things that the, the, the people were wanting them to do, like carry things or haul things. So Jesus is kind of liking the religious leaders of his day as like the older oxen. They're the older oxen, and, and the general populace is like the younger oxen. And the younger oxen is kind of yoked to the, to, to the older oxen, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The ones who were supposed to be the ones who basically showed them the ancient past, the way to God. But the problem is, is this. Those older oxen weren't guiding the younger ones. They weren't doing anything. The younger oxen, the general populace, they were the ones bearing the brunt. Bearing the brunt of the burden. And it's interesting to know that Jesus says, take my yoke because my yoke is light and my burden is light. I will give you rest. And the funny thing about it is, is that Jesus is not saying, come to me, what I'm going to command from you is easy. In fact, we can see from Matthews 5, 6, and 7 that what Jesus commands us Christians is far more difficult than what the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes or the religious leaders of Jesus' day commanded 
externally. Because Jesus requires a perfection. Jesus requires us to follow him, not just in the letter of the law, but in spirit. For it to come out of trust and faith. And for that to be the result. Our obedience to be the result. Our faith in God to prompt us by the heart and follow after God. Instead of just external laws and rituals. Because we are to keep the law in the spirit and prompt us to follow God physically. So what's going on here is Jesus is saying, look, take my yoke. My yoke will be light. Why? Because I'll bear it with you. I will bear it with you. I will be the older oxen. I will be in you and I will strengthen you. And I will provide sustenance to you spiritually for you to be able to carry the yoke that I'm placing upon you. That's why his burden is light. Not because it's easy. Not because he doesn't require much from us. But because he promises to bear it with us. He's not like the religious leaders of his day that just tell people what to do but don't do anything. But in fact, he comes to this earth, he comes to us, and he doesn't just say, follow me. He doesn't say, do what I say. He says, look to me. I'll show you how to do it. Learn from me. Learn from me. And this is what makes religion, or religion so much different than Christianity. And I don't call Christianity a religion like the world calls religion. But Christianity is the way, the only way to come to God. The only way to be free. The only way to this rest that Jesus is talking about. And in closing, I just want to remember us to remember that, that God with both to come to Him, we must have a humble heart. We must have a humble attitude. We must come to Him realizing that we are spiritually bankrupt without Him. We must come to God and realize that we have to produce the character that God wants us to produce. And that character is produced through our faith in Him. Faith in God, contentment in God, springs forth everything else. Obedience, righteousness, the righteousness of God. Disbelief, untrust in God, results in disobedience to God. We also need to realize that it is only through Jesus that we can come to God. The way to the Father is through Him and Him alone. There is no other way to come to God. Nothing that we can do of ourselves will bring us to salvation. As we look at the heart of the biblical message, we see that from the beginning of the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve chose to deny what God had provided them, that rest that God had provided him, in the Garden, that humanity forfeited that. And ever since then, God has been working on bringing man back to that rest there in the Garden. And it's done through Christ and Christ alone. So as we keep the Sabbath day, what an absolute remarkable significance it shows us. As we are here assembled and we see the commandment that God gives us to rest, we rest from our physical toils of this world. One day out of seven, every seventh day, the day we call Saturday. What more significance what Jesus says brings to us? Because not only are we doing it because God tells us, but now we see the symbolism. We see that we are every week, week after week, we are coming to God 
and we are realizing the rest that we have in Christ and the promise we have in Christ. That rest that is here and now and present, but is totally fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We understand this. So as we leave here today, as we think about this throughout the week, not just on the Sabbath day, but even throughout the week, we come to the Sabbath and we realize that we're putting off our toils of the world. We're putting off our physical labors and we're celebrating. We're remembering that rest that God promises us. The eternal rest that comes only through Christ and the Sabbath symbolizes. So as we do this, I'd like just all of us to ask to continually come to Jesus. Continually come to learn from Him. Continually come to Him who's promised us rest. So let us rejoice in what He has given us.